It could be that the party's over in Amsterdam. A new political power structure is cutting social services, defunding the arts, and revamping the famously tolerant laws of the Netherlands. Right now, if you asked a lot of gay people if Amsterdam were in fact the gay capital of Europe, they'd say, you know, we're not so sure anymore. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. In the hour ahead, radio journalist Jonathan Grober assesses the social changes taking place in the Netherlands. NPR's Steve Inskeep tells us how he found a simple proverb, like a bird in the hand, came to life in the bustle of Karachi. The last of those four birds settled down on my palm as if it did not know that it was free. And a Norwegian ski team checks in from Antarctica on their arduous trek to the South Pole. But it's all about uh, one step before the next one, hour after hour, and uh, doing that enough many days, you will get to the pole eventually. Get acquainted with the world. That's our mission on Travel with Rick Steves. Now that the world's population has passed 7 billion, uncontrolled megacities where millions scramble to make a living are popping up all over the developing world. In just a bit, we'll explore one of them, Karachi, Pakistan, through the observant eyes of journalist Steve Inskeep. And a European journalist shares news on how tensions in Holland are turning its famously tolerant society upside down, and how they're attempting to put the clamps on at least one of the distinctive activities that so many tourists travel to Amsterdam to enjoy. Let's start today's travel with Rick Steves in a completely different environment. Intrepid teams of Norwegians and Brits are racing right now against time and the elements to reach the South Pole. They're attempting a modern reenactment of the famous treks of Roald Amundsen and of Robert Scott. Amundsen was the first man to reach the Pole, where he proudly planted the Norwegian flag back in 1911. Scott arrived 33 days later. Modern clothing and communication methods mitigate the risks that doomed Scott's team. And there's now a scientific research base at the end of that icy trail. But 30 Below is still 30 Below. Jan Gunter Winter is the director of the Norwegian Polar Institute. and He's part of a four-man Norwegian team cross-country skiing to the South Pole. Their goal is to reach it by December 14th to mark the 100th anniversary of Amundsen's historic journey. We interrupted his skiing the other day to chat by satellite phone about the progress they're making. Jan Gunnar, thanks for joining us. Yeah, hello. Tell me, Jan Gunnar, uh, where are you exactly and uh, what is around you? What's your environment right now? Well, it's wide, flat, windy and minus 25 degrees. It's sunny though, but we are on the Ross Ice Shelf in Antarctica and that's a floating ice that surrounds most of Antarctica, but this uh, Ross Ice Shelf is the biggest one. And actually, it's 700 kilometers from the coast until it uh, reaches the mountain. So we are in the middle of this white, vast landscape. We are uh, some 1,150 kilometers from the pole. But the Ross Ice Shelf is 700 kilometers in itself. And after we have passed that one, we have to climb up to the plateau, and that's 3,000 meters elevation before we can uh, continue until the pole. Explain the the mission and your goal. Why are you doing this? Uh, what is the reason you're on this trek? Well, in Norway, we are celebrating this year uh, anniversary, both for the famous Fritjof Nansen, also an explorer, a polar explorer, and Roald Amundsen reaching the South Pole 100 years ago. So the whole country has different events over the year. There are schools involved, there are books written, and there are expeditions like this one. And we are doing this to celebrate uh, what happened 100 years ago, but also to learn the young people in particular back home about what happened that time. It was very important for Norway as a young nation, uh, these polar explorers. And today we know that the polar regions are important for other reasons, like climate change, for example. So through our expedition, we both would like to celebrate, and we would like to have an outreach component that goes out to the public. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're checking in with Jan Gunnar Winter, and he's the uh, director of the Norwegian Polar Team that's going to uh, reenact the historic first trip to the South Pole by the Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen. And he did that, reached the South Pole, first human ever to get there, December 14th, 1911. A hundred years later, another Norwegian team's heading there. And Jan Gunnar, reading your diary, by the way, we'll have a connection to Jan Gunnar's uh, diary at our website. So if you go to the radio section at ricksteves.com, you can click directly over 
to the website for the Norwegian expedition. A couple days ago, you were able to pull out the sails and actually use some wind power to power you ever further south. Tell us about that. Yeah, modern expeditions make use of ski sails or kites. And uh, if you have side winds or tailwind, you are able to use the wind to uh, make a progress. Now, going against the South Pole means mostly headwinds. And we have had, with one exception, we have had southerly winds and headwinds for one week now. But if the wind turns, we are able to use our ski sail. And then you can make, instead of 30 kilometers a day, which we are doing now, using 10 hours skiing, we can do maybe twice or even three and four times more in one day. Wow. So you go 30 kilometers in 10 hours of skiing. That's 18 miles in a 10-hour day. And it must have been exhilarating to have wind pulling you along in a, in a kite way. But then I read in your diary that it was actually pulling you in the wrong direction. So you realized as exhilarating yeah. as that was, you better take the sails down and, and ski in the right direction. Yeah, it was too much uh, of a headwind. No, we are not making very fast uh, progress because the, the snow is cold and we are also pulling our sleds with the heavy weights. So it doesn't go that fast. We are making four kilometers an hour and uh, and skiing ten hours a day. Wow. You're going into a headwind. You're pulling your gear. You're not using dogs. You're just using your own power. What's that like, uh, trudging into a headwind at 25 uh, degrees below zero? Well, <laughs> it's a, a very uh, monotonous days, actually. Uh, we are skiing for one hour, and uh, that, that are often very long hours. Uh, as I said, there is nothing to, to look at. It's only white here. But it's all about uh, one step before the next one, hour after hour. And uh, you doing that enough many days, you will get to the pole eventually. How do you occupy your brain as you're trudging like that with nothing to look at but white and the curvature of the earth and uh, 10 hours of that in a day? Well, some of us use the sound books, actually, so listen to books uh, while we are walking. It's also kind of relaxing just to let the, the thoughts fly away. We can't do that in normal life. Normally, we are very, uh, kind of everything is uh, piled up and we have uh, schedules and appointments, but here we can just let our thoughts fly away with the wind, so to speak. Are you enjoying that aspect of the trek? Yes, I am. It's, uh, it's a privilege, actually. Jan Gunnar, tell me what it's like. What do you see? What do you hear? Well, now I see just a white, flat surface. It's blue sky. It's a little bit wind, so there is blowing snow uh, at the ground. Uh, we can hear... Um, when we are walking in the cold snow, it, it's a lot of sound, actually, because the snow is so cold. Otherwise, from that, we, we don't hear anything, we don't see anything, we don't have people in hundreds and kilometers distance, so we are pretty much on our own. I noticed you're sort of traveling with the spirit of uh, your countryman, Roald Amundsen, who did this exact same trip with lesser technology 100 years ago. In what way is Amundsen with you? Well, we carry his uh, book from the expedition, and we read his book every day. We compare uh, what he did at the same day uh, as as we have, and it's amazing. I mean, he was an expert in polar logistics. He was so uh, up to details. Uh, he used dogs. We are not allowed to use dogs in Antarctica these times, uh, nowadays. But at that time, he had very good use of his dogs, and when he... He made much more progress than we do now. He uh, actually did double the speed because of the, the dogs. But on the other hand, he went into the unknown, and his expedition can't be even uh, close to be compared with ours today, of course. But uh, it's very exciting to, to look how he did and compare that with today. Being intimate with his diary and his journal, you must gain an appreciation for what he went through how is the environment that you are encountering today different from what Amundsen encountered 100 years ago on his trek to the South Pole? Basically, not much difference. It's the same distance. It's uh, as cold and it's as uh, wild and, and hostile. So that part of it hasn't changed. Of course, we can pull the emergency bacon or take up our iridium phone and, and get assistance. Amundsen was totally on his own, and that's, that's a big difference. How's the food for you? 
food is uh, the same every day. <laughs> same breakfast, 50 days, same uh, dinner, 50 days, but it's good food and it has lots of calories, and that's the most important part. <laughs> 50 days of the same food. When you get home, what are you going to eat? <laughs> Steak. Steak. Pancakes. <laughs> uh, I'm talking with Jan Gunnar Winter, and he's got uh, a team of four going to the South Pole to retrace the steps of his countryman, Roald Amundsen, who was the first person to reach the South Pole a hundred years ago. Jan Gunnar, when you reach the South Pole, what will you do? Well, if you are there in time for the anniversary date, which is 14th of December, the Norwegian Prime Minister will be there, and he will be the official representative from Norway meeting us at the Pole. Whoa, that'll be a big day in Norway. Yeah, it's also a celebration uh, nationwide in Norway at that day, same day. What is it about Norwegians that are so attracted to all of these brutal challenges of the uh, Arctic and Antarctic? Well, it's a long tradition, I think. And uh, young people today, they learn to ski and they learn to be outdoor in the winter and uh, using tents and so on. So I think that's it's a legacy we have from way back. And, of course, today we have the, the challenge of climate change, and I know Norway is tuned into that. Is that part of your mission? That is, absolutely. Uh, I have a background as a scientist, and, and through the website, which is also translated into English, we also blog and, and write about the climate change issues. Jan Gunnar, I understand there's a lot of action in the South Pole this season as this special 100-year milestone approaches. Who else is, is going to the South Pole at this time? There are various groups, solo expeditions and also teams like ours going to the South Pole from different places, different distances. Uh, there is one other team following the original Amundsen track, and that's a British team from the Army. They are some uh, four or five days behind us. And then um, all together, I think there will be about 200 expeditioners reaching the Pole. And at the pole, is there an airstrip? Is there a science base? Uh, is there a souvenir shop? Well, the United States has a, a research station there. Uh, it's a big station hosting uh, 250 people uh, during summer and 50 during winter. So there are large infrastructure for, for research, but there is also a, a souvenir shop, yes, inside. And the air is a little different, but you can still land an airplane there okay? Yeah, there is a so-called compacted snow runway, so there is a... Hercules planes with skis that lands at the pole. So getting out will be easier for you than for Amundsen? That's correct. We are flying home for Christmas. Thank God. <laughs> Jan Gunnar Winter, to you and your teammates, good luck and thank you for sharing your adventure with us. Well, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You'll find a link to the Norwegian Polar Trek in our program details. You can follow their progress in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Next, we venture to a place that couldn't be more different from Antarctica. NPR's Steve Inskeep describes what he discovered in an edgy and dangerous urban jungle of more than 13 million people. Hear what an observant and careful traveler can discover in the sensory overload known as Karachi. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Jag heter Marita Bergman, jag kommer ifrån Sverige, Stockholm och jag reser med Rick Steves. I'm Marita Bergman from Sweden, Stockholm and I travel with Rick Steves. 
Jag heter Marita Bergman från Sverige, Stockholm. Och jag reser med Rick Steves. A dramatic change in our world in the last 50 years is the advent of what Steve Inskeep calls instant cities. For the first time in history, there's more people living in big cities than in the countryside. And it has a huge impact on our travels. All over the world, there are massive cities, 10, 15, 20 million people, and it changes the whole experience of travel when we delve into these cities and learn what's happening today across this planet. Steve Inskeep is the co-host of NPR's Morning Edition. It's the most widely listened to radio news program in the United States. He's spent lots of time overseas covering different wars, Iraq, Afghanistan. He's been in Pakistan. His new book is called Instant City, Life and Death in Karachi. Steve, thanks for joining us. Thank you. How much time did you spend in Karachi? Uh, Never a tremendous time, but I've traveled there periodically since 2002. I covered the war in Afghanistan after 9-11. And the first time I went to Karachi, it was just an airport. I was on the way somewhere else. But later I was assigned to spend time there, and it seemed just like this massive and kind of scary place. And then on later visits, I began digging more deeply, meeting more people and traveling around on the streets, and I really became fascinated with the place. Now, your book really captures the events of a single tragic day, December 28, 2009. Well, this is a day when there was a religious procession in Karachi, a Shia Muslim religious procession. This is a religious minority in this incredibly diverse city. And people marched through the center of the city with massive security because Shias actually have been targeted in the past. This is also a violent city. They went through this really spectacular landscape, uh, Rick, and a a landscape that I felt privileged to look around. I mean an urban landscape. It was the old part of the city, the city that had existed before 1947 when Pakistan became independent and Karachi, which had been a growing city, just exploded even beyond that growth. And they were near actually this old city hall, this beautiful stone building that looks like a European building on the bottom and then has South Asian onion-shaped domes on top. They were near that building when the procession was bombed. Many people were killed. And afterward, men appeared on the streets in what is still a mysterious incident to some degree and burned hundreds of commercial shops wholesaler shops in the center of the city. And this was a tragic incident that to me exposed a lot of the conflicts driving a rapidly growing city like this. Conflicts over religion, conflicts over power and money and land and real estate. They all came together for me on that day. And that for me was a springboard, a jumping off point to try to explore this place that is so large and so interesting to travel to and in many ways so sad uh, but also sometimes inspiring. It was a way for it was a way in a window into me on, on the larger city and a large some of the larger trends of our time. Now you wrote improvisation is a way of life in Pakistan. What did you mean by that? Yeah. Well, what I mean is that this is a situation where there is not necessarily a lot of order in the conventional sense. There is not rule of law in a lot of the country or even in this big city. People use the phrase the writ of the government, and they talk about how the writ of the government does not extend to a great part of the rural population up near the border with Afghanistan. But really, if you go into an urban neighborhood in the largest city in the country, the writ of the government does not necessarily extend there, and people improvise. You may have a developer who would be described actually as a crime boss or denounced as a crime boss. He's a real estate developer. Uh, He grabs a chunk of land without paying for it from the government. It may have been designated parkland. It may be designated for a school. It may be some spare space on the campus of a hospital. It may just be random government land way out in the periphery that has yet to be assigned to much of anything, or it might have been agricultural land. And he'll grab this land, he'll slice it up into small lots and then sell these hundreds or thousands and eventually millions of home lots to poor people. And either he will build or they will build little concrete block houses in which people will live. And they've bought these houses that the seller didn't own and that the city feels no particular obligation to provide services to because they're not supposed to be there in the first place. And so people have to go illegally and hook up wires to the nearest power lines and steal electricity. And they need to dig their own sewers if they're going to have sewers. 
and there's not going to be running water in that neighborhood. And so a water truck will begin appearing and make deliveries daily or whenever, hopefully, and people can fill up their water tanks, and sometimes the water truck doesn't come. And so you do have, in this large and in some ways modern and, and in some ways very rich metropolis, millions of people who live an improvisational and kind of extra-legal life, an informal life is the way that development people would, would describe it. And, and you know from your travels, Rick, that there are cities like this all over the world, the favelas mm-hmm. of Rio de Janeiro or, or a hundred other examples that we could name. I've got friends dedicating their lives to work to help developing countries, and one thing that is so fundamental, they say, is land rights. Yeah, and and it's very politically charged. Like, I can describe these as illegal settlements, and they really are, but people will want to use other terms for that, and that's fair enough because what they're basically saying is that that poor people do not have opportunity necessarily in the same way that you would like in many uh, cities in the developing world, and, and they grab the opportunity they can. At least someone is providing them with a house. And I think part of it is poor people need to live close to their place of work, and they can't spend oh, half a day's huge. wages on the bus getting in and getting out, so they just camp out in, in the ravine that would otherwise not be suitable for human uh, use. Yeah. Talk to me just about what it feels like to be in, in one of these densely populated, teeming cities. Well, you, you, see, you see immense contrasts all over a city like Karachi, which is one of the most stimulating and exciting things about it, but sometimes the contrast is also sad. Uh, you see a huge contrast between rich and poor, for example. In Karachi, I mean, it's a seaside city. It's incredibly hot most of the year, but there's a beautiful sea breeze in the afternoon and the early evening kind of blows the sweat off your shirt. And you can go walk on the beach and you might even get a camel ride for a few rupees on the beach if you want to. And you can ride that camel past a couple of glassy towers that have been built just in the last couple of years attached to a shopping mall that's under construction right now. It's going to be a million square foot development. Hmm. And a little ways down, you can pass a couple of ancient religious shrines, one of them Hindu, one of them Muslim. And near that is a 60-story skyscraper that's under construction. And a little further down the way, you can go out on this old pier that is left over from British colonial times. It's known as the Native Jetty. But they've changed the name to Port Grand and put upscale shops and restaurants on this pier, this waterfront attraction. It's become like this Disneyland version of Pakistan. And so you have a lot of upscale development, but you don't have to go very far to end up in one of these informal settlements that I'm describing. They take many different forms. It might be actually a legal building that someone built, three or four stories tall, and then someone added another floor and Mm. then added another Mm. floor and then built out into the alley and into the backyard and started taking over part of the street and the street became narrower. People uh, will do anything they can to create a little bit of space for themselves. And the contrast between that and the upscale, more globalized part of Karachi's economy is really striking. You don't look very Pakistani. What, what was it like to be walking down the streets of that city? Did people stare? Or how was your reception? Oh, everybody was great. I mean, yeah, people would stare. People would make remarks. I made no effort to blend in. I very rarely do. I try to keep a low profile and be courteous and polite to everyone and know who I'm going to see and go there in a dangerous environment. But, but I don't adopt the native uh, dress or try to grow a beard or do anything that, that some people will do. I respect those who do that, mm-hmm. certainly. Can a tourist just wander through the markets and, and feel comfortable? Or, or Well, to a degree. I mean, I, I'm not sure that the State Department would recommend you do that in Karachi right mm-hmm. now. Uh, I mean, this is a place where there is terrorism, where there have been kidnappings. It can be a very, very hazardous place for Americans uh, to go. And so I hesitate to recommend that you go and walk around now. But I want to tell you that if your business should take you there, if you have an occasion to go there, and you you connect with someone that you know in a place like this, Mm -hmm. it can be really remarkable how hospitable people are. We hear all these headlines about anti-Americanism in Pakistan, and the headlines are true. I mean, the media has all kinds of outrageous conspiracy theories about American plots, and people are resentful of American wars up near the border with Afghanistan and of Pakistanis who've been killed in this war on terror. But at the same time, people will welcome you into their lives. There's a great culture of hospitality, and you'll be invited in for tea, after which you'll be invited for dinner, and people will regale you with stories, and they'll look after you more than you look after yourselves. They're aware that you're a foreigner. 
they they want to make sure nothing happens to you. And you discover, you'll hear conversations behind your back and and discover that people are talking about you and looking after you and making sure that, that you're okay. You know, I'm, I'm sure there's dangers just for being a, a wealthy uh, person from America wandering the streets in a desperately poor neighborhood. But probably the uh, big danger that a lot of people underestimate is just environmental dangers. You've got monsoon, you've got 20 million people evacuating when that Indus River comes into the the harbor there. Well, thanks thanks for reminding me of that because that's another thing I want to stress. I mean, I know people ask, you know, Steve, why do you go to to a dangerous place like that? Well, I want to learn. I want to meet people. And it's actually not that hazardous for me to visit a place. What is hazardous about a country like that is living there. Mm -hmm. And it has been a very hard place to live, especially the last few years. There have been catastrophic floods each of the last two summers to us, monsoon seasons to people in South Asia, there is a lot of concern about climate change. And even when things are drier, people are very concerned about pollution. This is a city where only a fraction of the sewage gets treated on its way out to sea, out into the ocean in which fishermen have fished for generations and are still fishing now. Immense pollution is created by this city. There are industrial sites, uh, industrial toxic sites in the city. There have been cases of, of children being affected by this. And of course, it's such a deeply troubled place, it's hard really even to focus on that. There are so many more urgent war stories or bombings to focus on, for the media to focus on, either here or there, that those cases hardly get attention. They're building that collapse. There are construction standards that are not followed. It is a hard place to live. But let me give you a little metaphor, Rick, for how people deal with it that actually gets into the nature of the buildings and the way the city feels different. I have noticed that staircases in Karachi, and in fact in much of the developing world, are different than staircases in the United States. A carpenter explained to me once the code that there was, the building code in Washington, D.C. for a staircase. Every step is supposed to be the identical height, the identical depth. And there actually have been studies that show that when you mess with the height and depth of the steps, when you vary them, the staircase becomes very hard to climb or descend, and it's very easy to trip. It's very easy to fall. Well, you go to Pakistan, and even in some very nice buildings, the staircase has been improvised together with no rules or regulations whatsoever, and you'll have a six-inch step that's two feet deep followed by a foot-and-a-half step that's six inches deep. I mean, it will change all the way up, and you actually have to really watch your step, which doesn't say a lot about Karachi building codes. But the other thing that I noticed is that people in Pakistan just glide right up that staircase. Hmm. Uh, I hesitate, and I notice have to catch myself and make sure I don't stumble. They go right up and right down. They have adapted to those challenging conditions, which is inspiring in a way. I mean, a small example of a really large thing that people do in their lives. It is inspiring, and it, it illustrates the um, excitement and, and the value of getting out of our comfort zone and understanding how the other 96% of humanity lives. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Steve Inskeep. His new book is Instant City, Life and Death in Karachi. And Steve, you were talking about the horrendous pollution in some of these mega cities. And you wrote beautifully in your book about street kids out in the traffic. Their shirts were the color of, of car pollution. And I know your book is, is teaching a lesson about instant cities across the planet, but it's great travel writing as well. Thank you. Take us just to one moment out in the streets with these, these kids that you'd meet oh, when you roll down your window. Yeah, you're referring to these kids that you can find on certain street corners in Karachi. And they're selling birds. They've got little nets with little birds in them. And they may have a cage off to the side of the road with some extra birds. And they're selling them to drivers. And it's a kind of religious tradition, although I heard a variety of opinions and meanings ascribed to it. But essentially, if a person is driving through traffic and has had a miserable day or is having a miserable life and wants perhaps to ease their mind or gain the favor of God, they'll roll down that window or even get out of the car and buy a bird. The boy with that pollution-colored shalwar kameez, the loose uh, clothes, so this will be a poor young man, usually, will sell that bird, take it out of the cage or take it out of the net, place it in your hands, and you release it and set it free. So you almost, you, you pay a ransom to free this bird and by that good deed uh, somehow improve your own life. 
it's a fascinating tradition that seems to be followed, seems to be observed by people of more than one religious faith in Karachi. I'm sure that there is a scholar somewhere who knows exactly where this came from, but it's been embraced by people of multiple religious traditions. And actually, one day, I myself decided to do this. And I stopped by the side of the road and, and uh, talked with a young man, and he sold me four birds for a hundred Pakistani rupees, which is a little more than a dollar. Uh, he'd bought them in the market for less than that and was now selling them to make any money that he could. And he placed them in my hand one by one, and and I let them go. Um, I don't think that he was impressed with my style. He just put them in my hand and they'd like bounce off my hand like they were bouncing on a diving board and fly away. But the last one, Rick, the last of those four birds settled down on my palm as if it did not know that it was free. And I waited a moment and finally just moved my hand a little and the bird flapped its wings and flew off into a darkening sky. Beautiful, beautiful. And to, to me, I, I just thought that, that moments like that brought home the quirkiness, the faithfulness, the creativity, the culture, the perseverance, and, and just the glorious strangeness of, of another place where, where some of my fellow human beings live. It just it brought home the city to me. Steve Inskeep, author of Instant City, Life and Death in Karachi, Thanks so much for sharing the lessons of your travels with all of us. It's an honor to do it. Thank you, Rick. Tell us where you've been traveling in a short haiku poem. You know the format. It's three lines long of five, seven, and then five syllables. Be traditional and have it convey an impression of nature or a surprise you encountered on the road. Here are some haiku we thought you'd enjoy sent in by our listeners from a link in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Sarah Tuttle of Corvallis, Oregon, was surprised by the attention she got on an overseas vacation and writes us a trio of haiku about it. Backpacking with Meg. She, a guy magnet, not me. We, fending off men. He said, I love you. Look, me. American girl, I want to marry you. Traveling abroad. Too bad we tourists stick out, loud, lost, impatient. What can you learn from the Netherlands? We'll get a first-hand look next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK. Some of the Dutch are calling it dark clouds of change on the horizon in Holland. Let's link up our studio right now with Radio Netherlands in Hilversum and check in with Jonathan Grobert. He hosts The State We're In. It's a weekly international news program that reports on how we treat each other all around the world. It airs on more than 70 public radio outlets here in the United States. Jonathan has a particularly informed perspective on the enterprising Dutch society since he moved there from New York 20 years ago to be a journalist. He met his wife there, and today they're raising two children in Amsterdam. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure, sir. Jonathan, when you are in the Netherlands welcoming guests from the United States, they've got sort of an agenda of things to see, all the famous museums and so on, but there's a lot of ways you can do cultural sightseeing and kind of know what's on the mind of the Dutch people and you know, feel the pulse of their culture. What's something that uh, you'd recommend they see or do? Well, you know, there's, the Dutch have an expression, and that is, God made the world, but the Dutch made Holland. And that is actually not apocryphal. It's 100% true, because something like 45% of this country is under sea level. It's been reclaimed from the North Sea. They call it poldering. That basically just means like drying out wetlands and turning them into dry land. But most of this is still under sea level. So that also means you have this incredible extensive diking system all along the coast. So what I do 
to make sure that people get a sense of that because this is really very special. I don't, I've never been anywhere where they do anything like this and it makes the Dutch landscape completely unique and some say it's beautiful, some say it's weird, is I take them out to a place called Marken, which used to be an island and now it's connected to the mainland by a causeway. And the great thing about Marken is not just the fact that it's a fantastic little town that looks the way it did 200 years ago, it hasn't changed at all, but the fact that to get to it, you actually have to ride on top of a dike. And as a result of that, you actually get to see how high the sea is to the right of you versus how low the land is to the left of you. And then you begin to understand a little bit about Dutch character and Dutch culture because the Dutch are pretty tenacious. They can be a little bit grumpy. They can be a little bit harsh. But that's because the landscape really did make them that way. You know, this is a, a nation that simply had to fight every single inch or every centimeter, as they would say, for, for their very existence. And the fact of the matter is, is if they don't keep this system of dikes dry, if they don't raise them a little bit each year, if they don't fix them all the time, if they don't fix all the, the canals, if they don't fix all the sluicing, if they don't make sure that the sea stays out, they are quite literally sunk. <laughs> yeah. So if people talk about global warming, for example, and the fact that the sea levels are going to rise, well, this is, of course, incredibly concerning to the entire Dutch nation, which is afraid that it will drown. But the fact of the matter is there probably is no country on earth more willing and more capable of addressing this kind of thing like the Netherlands because they've been doing it for centuries. They've really got this thing worked out at this particular point, and they are willing to throw a lot of money at it, even if very few people live there, just to keep it dry. This would be a huge investment. I understand they're actually raising the dikes around the entire country. Is there any discussion about how worthwhile this investment is? Do some people not see the global warming contributing to the rising of the sea? Or what, what do the Dutch people think about this? It's a non-issue. You have to spend the money, that's it. Conservatives, liberals, everybody in the Netherlands just accepts it. Everybody agrees. You have to spend money on this. You, you just have to, because for them, it's a truly existential fact of life. Right. If they don't keep the sea out, their way of life is gone. And so there's no discussion whatsoever. And within those dikes, you've got a very diverse and densely populated country. And for centuries, the Dutch have been famous for their tolerance. How are they doing today with um, minorities, gay rights? Well, you know, I mean, Dutch society is going through tremendous amounts of changes. The government that you have in office right now is pretty intolerant towards minorities at this moment. They're reducing the amount of immigration that can come into this country greatly. And if you come from a non-Western society then they're going to create tremendous demands on, on you even coming to the country. They even demand that you learn to speak some Dutch before you even come to the country and give you a test on the telephone before you come over. I can't think of another country that's doing something like that. Wow. In terms of gay rights, that's, that's really interesting because the Netherlands and, and Amsterdam in particular has for quite a long time prided itself, that is not a coincidence, me using that word, prided itself on being the gay capital of Europe. And to that effect, there have been really a lot of gay rights in the Netherlands for far longer than in most other European countries and certainly most countries around the world. You see quite often gay men and women walking down the street holding hands and kissing, but there, there is a problem at the moment, and that is the fact that there's been a large increase in gay bashing. It's uh, very much on the increase, and you see that young North African males who wander through the city, who actually go out actively looking to find gay men and gay women who are displaying openly homosexual behavior and then beating them up. I mean, that's exactly what's happening. And you have other situations where you have, you know, openly gay men and women who are living in housing projects throughout the country who then find themselves literally being chased out of their homes. There was a very famous incident of this in Rotterdam that just happened recently and the government is investigating and so there's a lot of fear, once again, amongst the uh, Dutch gay community that things are going backwards and that they have to work really hard in order to maintain their status. And right now, if you asked a lot of gay people if Amsterdam were, in fact, the gay capital of Europe, they'd say, you know, we're not so sure anymore. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jonathan Gruber, and our phone number is 877-333-7425. Gary's on the line in Rochester Hills, Michigan. Gary, thanks for your call. 
You're welcome, Jonathan. Nice to talk to you. I had a question about the change that I hear is coming in the coffee house uh, scene in Amsterdam. I started about 20 years going uh, every year over to Europe and get Amsterdam every two or three years, and while not really participating in it, I wondered whether that change that's coming uh, might affect tourism, in your opinion. And for some people who don't know the coffee house culture, that's the whole idea that the Dutch sell marijuana uh, basically legally in little shops like pubs called coffee houses. Well, Gary, this is definitely going to affect a certain kind of tourist that comes to the Netherlands. And you're right, they are going to change the system, what the government wants to do and absolutely intends to do and is very likely going to do is make it so that tourists who do not come from the neighboring countries of Germany or Belgium can no longer buy small amounts of marijuana or hashish in the coffee shops. It's basically meant for locals. They're going to create a membership system and you get a card and then you can go to the coffee shop and you can go and buy that. And the idea is the government wants to discourage people who are coming from, say, France or anywhere else in the world who are simply coming to the Netherlands to buy marijuana to stop that. And the reason that they're giving that they want to stop it is because they don't like the image and it creates certain level of petty crime wherever they go and problems of people, say, driving up four hours from France, going to one of the border towns in the Netherlands, and then creating a lot of trouble at the coffee shops where they are, in fact, buying their weed and their hash. Does that answer your question, man? Yes, it does. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Gary, for your call. So they, they're letting Germans and Belgians come in and buy marijuana as if they were locals. Right. But I would think that's the main problem, is people from nearby were just crossing the border to stock up and then go home. And, and that was why border towns like Maastricht were having the big concerns about this. It is very confusing to me as well. You'd think that they would simply make it uh, very, very local, but that's not the case. So they're letting Germans and Belgians. Yeah. This change in the coffee shop, I mean, for the last 25 years in the Netherlands, you know, a joint's been about as exciting as a can of beer. Suddenly there is this rollback on, um, you know, this easygoing approach to marijuana. Who's behind this? Is this from the Dutch people, or is it pressure from the EU or United States, or, or what's your take on that? As far as I can tell, the pressure from the United States has had no influence whatsoever on this particular policy. There has been pressure, particularly from the French government on the Dutch government, for a long, long time about this, because the, the French are, in fact, much, much stricter with regard to their soft drug laws. That's what hashish and marijuana are called in the Netherlands, soft drugs, as opposed to, say, hard drugs like cocaine or heroin. And by the way, it was never actually legal here. It was always illegal. What they had was a policy of tolerance. And the reason why you would want to do something like that was it gave the government the freedom to change their policy at whim without actually having to change a law. And it probably also took just a lot of the violence and the crime and the money out of it. Well, you know, there is a lot of evidence to say that the Dutch soft drug policy has, in fact, been very, very successful. But it's also... It's been kind of schizophrenic because while it was and will continue to be for certainly for local Dutch people legal to buy small amounts of the marijuana and hash and it's been legal to sell small amounts of marijuana and hash. It was not legal to grow it. So <laughs> what you ended up having was giant plantations in people's basements and in their attics throughout the city. And you'd from time to time you hear about how the police, you know, would catch these people and dismantle them. So you still had, you know, a certain level of crime going on. So it's, it's a very complex policy. It, it always kind of worked, but never completely. And so this is why you see Dutch society struggling with a manner to get this right. That's what the Dutch called the gray area, I think. They just knew they didn't deal with the backside of it. How are they going to wholesale it and produce it? And uh, they sort of just looked the other way. Guys that I know who run coffee shops have told me that it's easier now to just grow it locally than to import it. And they've got the technology to grow all sorts of different strains and so on. So they get their Moroccan and their Pakistani and whatever, all homegrown. And uh, it's quasi, it's not quasi-legal, it's sort of... Uh, it's, it's illegal. Right. Anything more than five plants is illegal. Yeah, but somebody's growing it and providing oh, yeah. these, these coffee shops. And uh, the Dutch haven't figured that out. And that's the challenge with trying to deal with marijuana is how do you let it be a business without having big billboards? You're raising two kids in the Netherlands. What's your take on that? Is there a lot of pressure for kids to, you know, get into marijuana? Or do you think that this sort of uh, coffee shop approach makes more sense from a, a parenting point of view than having marijuana just illegal and out on the streets? Well, you know, pot use in the Netherlands is far lower than in the United States. That's clear. So in that sense, the policy is a success. 
Hmm. And uh, there was a lot of heroin abuse in this country, but that seems to have gone away. So really, the pressure to use drugs in this country is nothing like it was, like I experienced growing up in the United States. I, I remember that it was basically everywhere. It may as well have been legal because everybody could get it and everybody, frankly, had it. And when I say everybody, I'm exaggerating, but you get the point. I get the point. And whereas in the Netherlands, you hardly ever see it. Really, you hardly ever see it. And the, and the only time that it comes around where it becomes visible in the society has to do with dance culture and the use of ecstasy and a, a lot of new artificial drugs that are coming in that have to do with that kind of thing. That's the only place where drug use is visible in Dutch society. But for the most part, the level of problems which you have in the United States with drug abuse are far, far lower here. So if you're going to compare policies, if you're going to put American policy alongside Dutch policy, and you're going to say, which is the one that's working better for the society? The clear winner is the Netherlands. Having said that, they're still struggling with fine-tuning this policy. You know, if you're going to compare, if you want to, if you must compare American society to Dutch society, and you want to say, is there a red state, blue state situation in the Netherlands? You know, within a Dutch context, I would have to broadly answer, yes, there is. The, the country is in flux. There's a lot of fear about Dutch society staying Dutch in many ways. The Dutch are in love with the ideal of being tolerant. And in order to preserve it, in order to preserve freedoms for uh, homosexuals, in order to preserve women's rights, in order to preserve the richness that the society has, in order to preserve this very special, very satisfied society that they have built up, they have become, in many ways, very intolerant. In other words, with regard to immigrants, who many people here regard as a threat to all that they have built up and have come to love and have come to expect out of Dutch society, they have become very intolerant towards the one million Muslim immigrants who live in this country. I'm speaking very broadly. This absolutely isn't the case for everybody, but it is the environment in which we find ourselves right now under this, the most right-wing government in the post-war history of the Netherlands. So what does that mean then, basically, for the American tourist who goes to Amsterdam and wants to drop into a coffee shop and smoke some pot? Well, if you want to go into a coffee shop and you want to smoke some pot, I would go do that soon. Because sometime in the course of next year, that's not going to be possible anymore unless you can find some way to become part of a what are now going to be clubs and you're going to have to have a club membership card, it's just not going to be possible to buy pot in the Netherlands anymore as an American tourist. Jonathan Gruber, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. You'll find a link to Jonathan Grobert's program, The State We're In, in our program details for this week. And it's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. The town where you live is probably nothing like the places we've talked about today. Or maybe it really is a little bit like Amsterdam, Karachi, and the Ross Ice Shelf all rolled into one. Write us a short essay about the place you call home and play it up so that anyone passing by on the highway might want to stop by and pay a visit. There's a good chance you'll eventually hear us read it right here on Travel with Rick Steves. You'll find an email link in the radio section of ricksteves.com for sending us your best effort. Here's a description of the hometown of one of our listeners. Jessica Gill sends us this about her hometown a few miles north of Cincinnati. The city of Hamilton, Ohio, is an important regional center of business, industry, culture, and government. It's the county seat of Butler County in southwest Ohio and centrally located between the Cincinnati and Dayton metropolitan areas. Called the City of Sculpture, Hamilton is home to a brilliant array of art and sculptures decorating the downtown. The Fitton Center for Creative Arts 
provides an assortment of family art classes and exhibits. And the Hamilton Fairfield Symphony Orchestra showcases the finest musicians dedicated to preserving live classical music. International guest artists and renowned conductors make the Hamilton Fairfield Symphony Orchestra a special cultural destination. Enjoy art in the outdoors with its unique outdoor display of more than 30 pieces scattered throughout a natural setting the Pyramid Hill Sculpture Park is proof that Hamilton's historic past and the heavy influence of the arts in the community have made public art readily visible. Pyramid Hill also features a 10,000-square-foot ancient sculpture museum displaying Roman, Egyptian, Greek, and Etruscan sculptures that are thousands of years old. Atlantic Monthly said that the 265 acres here in the midst of rolling hills are surely the most beautiful natural setting of any art park in the country. With more than 150 acres of natural beauty, hikers and nature lovers can find peaceful hiking and miles of paved walking, biking, and inline skating pathways on the scenic banks of the Great Miami River. There's wildlife and waterfowl in Hamilton too, not to mention challenging golf courses, an airfield devoted to radio-controlled planes, and the oldest and largest motocross BMX track in the state, and all the scenic and sports-related advantages of life along a riverfront. That's from an email sent to us by listener Jessica Gill, who listens to Travel with Rick Steves from Cincinnati Public Radio on WMUB from Oxford, Ohio, telling us about where she lives in nearby Hamilton, Ohio. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Special thanks to Oregon Public Broadcasting, Radio Netherlands, Keith Stickelmeyer, and the Norwegian Polar Institute for their help today. You'll find links to our guests in the radio section of our website, ricksteves.com. That's also where you can post your comments and travel reports and listen to archives of the show at your leisure. Rick also has audio tours and maps for major sites in Europe that you can download to your smartphone. Click on the radio tab at ricksteves.com to access them. We'll see you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. Along those same lines, Europe 101, History and Art for the Traveler, is a must-read for anyone who appreciates Europe's rich history and great art. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.